Good afternoon and welcome back to the EJS show on the Liberty Block with Ed, Jody, and Steve. This show is being recorded live and will be available within a few hours as a podcast, which can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud by searching for the Liberty Block. We invite anyone listening to this podcast to join us live on Zoom or by phone and share with, share with us your thoughts on the issues that we discuss. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm told that today is a historic day. I mean that both seriously and a wee bit of tongue in cheek. Um, I understand we're living under a new administration. I personally did not listen to the outgoing speech yesterday, nor to the incoming speech today. And I know we can discuss among many other things, what, uh, what has Trump done in his final days and what do we expect in the coming days of the Biden administration. So with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Ed. Good afternoon, everybody. I hope you're all well. Uh, the Biden administration is four hours old and they're not wasting time getting going. Uh, I did listen to the, to the speech he gave after he was sworn in. It was only maybe 15 minutes long. And I think the most noteworthy thing that I can report to you is he made sure to remind everybody that you and I are domestic terrorists and that he's gonna deal with us. And I think that's one of the things that we've gotta be most concerned about in the next hundred days. I'm, I think I mentioned at the end of last week's show that uh, I expect a, a Patriot Act II to be on the early agenda for the new Biden administration. And I think they're gonna to look to silence dissent and potentially put the, try and put the clamps on uh, conservative talk radio, Fox News, and maybe even podcasts like the one we're doing right now. Uh, I don't expect that we're high on their list, uh, but I think that we are on the list. I think all of us are on the list. Ed, can I interrupt you very briefly? Sure. Um, I know you said you listened to President Joe Biden's inaugural speech, but I've seen it described very differently. At 2.46 p.m. it was reported that Chris Wallace, noted debate mediator, et cetera, says that Joe Biden's speech is the best inaugural address he has ever heard. So I just wanna check it and make sure you're talking about the same speech. You know what? Chris Wallace is entitled to his opinion. I think it's a poor opinion. I disagree with him. If Joe Biden really wants unity, if he really wants to, to bring the country together, the first thing he should have done even before the speech is, is to call off the dogs on this ridiculous, phony impeachment of President or now former President Trump. Um, we all know that the only purpose is to try and invoke the disqualification clause in the Constitution. Uh, but anyone who reads the Constitution with an honest eye can tell that the disqualification clause is ancillary to a removal of off from office. And once Trump is no longer president, he can't be removed from office and there can't be any disqualification. Uh, any purported disqualification would be uh, going after a private citizen, and it would be imposing an additional requirement uh, on the eligibility to be president, that namely, you'd have to be approved by Congress. And that's just not in the Constitution. It's not re reasonable. And, you know, just getting back to the, the point that at hand, if Joe Biden is, is trying to be presidential and, and unifying, he would say goodbye to President Trump, have a nice life. And you know your supporters are part of my administration. You're part of my team. I'm president from all the for all the country, and uh, he didn't do that. He's he's not interested in doing that. He wants to be seen as having done that. He wants credit for having done that, but he's not willing to do that at all. So, Chris Wallace is he's entitled to his opinion. I think it's a bad one. But I've been told he's very unbiased when it comes to Republicans. <laughs> yeah. Well. Uh Biden who told you that? Um, he, he did. For he one will. Thing. He'll tell you that. He did. Um, I don't want to knock Biden too much. It's early in the presidency. But if his speech was short, that may be all they can get out of him. <laughs> That's true. So, Jody, any comments? Uh, I think it's beginning? time to invoke the 25th Amendment. That's what, what I say. I'm just saying, Jody. Any comments on this um, speech? Did you no, listen to the I mean, speech? No, I mean, I just 
just to I, I and I also am um, behind in watching both gentlemen, Trump and Biden. Uh, but I did go to see Biden's website, and it has all those lovely, warming words. Actually, something that uh, Barack Obama uh, said. I don't know, it was 2005, uh, you know, about not red states and blue states, but United States. It's all this warm, fuzzy language that I personally love, except now I understand that that's all it is, is flowery words. Um, you know, it'll be followed by something, you know, uh, where we will be somehow called the enemy, which isn't that what Barack Obama actually called us also was the enemy. So, I mean, and, and, and our side does it too. It, it, it's how politics works, but it just highlights a reason why I don't want politicians having power and money. They're not trustworthy people. I don't think the vast majority of them are good leaders because that's what they do. They weaponize words, they weaponize emotions and they do it, they do it for their gain and not for ours and I just, it's really, it's very sad. I don't say these words lightly and I'm not like a snowflake by any means, but seeing a short video clip yesterday morning of the National Guard on empty streets in Washington literally brought a tear to my eye. And I don't know if any of us have stepped back to realize this is America. You know, I was... I have said this before. I don't know if I've ever said it while we're recording, but you all know, I don't feel like I come into these discussions as the intellectual one. I'm not as learned as you. I'm not as well-read as you. I'm catching up on having been duped for a long period of time and trying to catch up on that plus keep with what's going. I'm, I'm making excuses right now. But anyway, the reason I bring that up is because I've been trying to sort of get my balance on we keep our side keeps getting um, called Nazis or somehow we get paralleled with the Nazis. And so I've been trying to find out who you know better because I, I, I don't have a solid footing, educational footing and knowledge footing. I've been trying to sort of balance what what why are they comparing? What are we doing that's similar to Nazis? And much like everything that I've found in the past when it comes to the left, as I look further, it, and I'm not, trying, I'm not trying to make this as a horrifying claim like they do, like that they're enemies or that, you know, these horrible names they call us. I'm just trying to, A, um, highlight that we're not doing these things that the Nazis did. And let's look at some of the things that the Nazis did. For example, they were the ones with the propaganda and the censorship. You know, they were the one um, burning books. They were the one taking over radio, entertainment, um, school. You know, I it just it, and then there's what what is it the uh, what is it called the fire the Reich Reich how do you pronounce that? Reich. Yes, that I pronounce it Reichstag, but it's okay. Reichstag fire could be kind of you can see some similarities with what's happening now. So like I said, I feel like maybe that's some his extreme language. However, we're being called Nazis. So it's kind of important to call out who Nazis were and what they did. And you know, in that process, I'm just saying, I see the left acting very much that way. Well, maybe without their knowledge of a lot of I've, people. As I've said to you before, Jody, and I know you like this comment, every time the left makes an accusation, it's, it's an admission. It is spot on. That's what's going on here. They are the kings of projection. And what they accuse us of is what they are. They, and they don't use language. You and I use language as a tool to communicate information and truth. They use language as a tool to weaponize and to hammer. Yeah. And they're just, nobody, nobody, if you're a true Nazi would, would laugh and shrug if you called them a Nazi. It's only people who are innocent of that charge who get all defensive Disturbed and- Disturbed by it. Right. Yeah. And so, the, and that's the exact purpose of it. It's designed to put us on our heels and make us defensive while they remain on the offense. Um, Steve, exactly I, right. They're, uh, they're trying to intimidate and silence us, and that's why they they do that. I see how it works, though. I mean, I, I it's effective. Steve, when it's I, a mob, 
Yeah. I just wanted to get back to Steve's initial point because I, I totally agree. Um, I don't know if it's that Steve, you and I are a little older, um, but seeing the, the military guarding the streets like that, as if it's a garrison city, it didn't bring tears to my eyes. It, it, it brought an anger inside me, honestly. Um, that should, that is not America. And, and worse, this is being done by people that, that have spent the last four years telling us that walls don't work. And yet they built a big freaking wall all the way around DC to keep everybody out and to bring the military in to militarize it. If they, they they've, they've just acknowledged for all of us and for all the world that if they had just gotten on board with Trump's wall, we could have built a wall, we could have kept the illegals out and we could have then decided how we're gonna let them in or not let them in. Uh, walls do work, they just showed it. Um, and they, but they're only willing to do it in the name of violating the civil liberties of Americans. Not to uh, mention that they put that wall up in minutes <laughs> and they didn't need any environmental impact study. I mean, to protect themselves, that it, it's just unbelievable. I just, you know, you guys know I've lived overseas. I've lived in Israel. I love much about Israel. But one of the things that strikes you when you first go there is you land in the airport and there's people in military uniform holding automatic weapons. And it's shocking to an American. Mm -hmm. And how is it that we're not shocked that our capital city is locked down with people standing guard in military uniforms? Yep. Which is, it's so far away from anything we should be. It looks like Venezuela, looks like North Korea. And I don't, I don't watch TV all day, but I don't hear people being shocked by it. Well, you know, I, I was in Venezuela 20, about 25 years ago, believe it or not. I went to Caracas and that's what it seems like. It, it's eye-opening when, you know, again, you go back a quarter century ago, this idea is foreign to us that we would see anything like that here in America. But at the time, it was shocking. Well, you know what? Right after 9-11, right after 9-11, all the, you know, Port Authority in New York, I was living in, right across the river in New Jersey and I was working... Well, actually, I was working in New Jersey at the time, but I was doing a lot of work in New York as well. And anytime you went into New York, you saw that military presence, uh, especially at Port Authority and, and by the World, the World Trade Center area. It wasn't, obviously there wasn't a World Trade Center at that point. Um, but I remember feeling not just shocked, but I mean, you know, I hate to admit this to, you know, a large following of people, but I mean, scared. You know, seeing a big military presence really scared me. I mean, I, you know, and I remember even during the, the first decade of the 2000s, I mean, I, Mike, I know you're a New Yorker or you know, you're, you're in New Jersey. I remember when they had the all-star game at, Shea, at um, City Field. And yeah. uh, I remember the, the military presence all over the city. I mean, you couldn't go, you couldn't go 20 feet without seeing, you know, multiple soldiers with, automatic weapons. And I was so disturbed by it. And I, you know, Steve, you said earlier, oh, I'm not a snowflake and I've never been a snowflake either, but it was unnerving. That's the word I've been looking for. It was really unnerving. And, and it's just become, we're being, we're being accustomed to it. We're being brought to think that that's okay and normal. And, you know, I, I, I hate to think what the younger generation is going to think 10 or 20 years from now, because for them, they don't have that same upbringing that you and I had. I mean, for me, it, it's, it's still shocking. I mean, to see, to see a police officer like that, just, or, or soldiers in the street in America is just disturbing and unnerving to me. Mm -hmm. Please don't quote me on this. Cause I'm going to quote Democrats. That's not who we are. <laughs> so I, I kind of mean that that's one thing America never had was military on the streets. It's absolutely shocking. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I don't want to give any much time to the pardons yesterday. Um, possible if anybody wants to chime in very quickly on this report that I think Tucker spoke about on TV, that the reason Trump didn't pardon Assange at all was because he was threatened. Anybody hear that? Anybody want to comment? I heard that, Steve, and that really, really pisses me off uh, on multiple levels. It pisses me off that McConnell would have made such a threat. And it pisses me off that Trump gave into that threat. And whether the threat was made or not, I do not understand why Trump didn't pardon those people. 
his big complaint right now, if I, as I look at it, is that he got burned by the deep state. You know, he thinks he got cheated. We all, I think, to varying degrees on this show, think that he got cheated and that the, the deep state just didn't want him and wouldn't have him. And this was a chance for him to, to help reveal who the deep state is and to highlight who they are by pardoning people like Assange and Snowden uh, and the other guy that, uh, that Tucker mentioned, Ber Berkeley, I think, um, who I knew less about. But I, I am just deeply, deeply disappointed that Trump didn't pardon those people. And, you know, for McConnell to say that if he, if he does pardon them, it's gonna, he's going to vote for impeachment. It, Trump should have Trump should have dared them to impeach him. I mean, what does he have to lose? I mean, the only thing they have on him would be that third time's third time's a charm. <laughs> I mean, at this point, you know what? I if he did that, if they do impeach, I think any Republican that impeaches that voted to impeach or to convict is is signing his own death warrant in the party if the party is going to continue to exist. I know that Liz Cheney has already got a very conservative pro-gun rights constitutionalist who's, who's uh, signed up to challenge her in the primary already. And she just got sworn into a new term, uh, but he's apparently already filed papers or uh, filed the paperwork necessary to challenge her in a primary a year and a half from now. Um, and I think all, all anyone who votes for impeachment of Trump should be challenged in the Republican caucus, period. I think um, you guys probably know Liberty Block has strong roots in Wyoming. And a good friend of the program, whose name I won't mention because they didn't ask permission, who's very involved in Wyoming politics, he said that guy is a good guy. And even though I don't believe in working for congressional races, I think just showing Liz Cheney that what she did was just absolutely ridiculous is worth sending a dime to Wyoming for primaries. Amen. That did Mike Zanello have something to say? I thought I saw him raise his hand. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to push back against uh, some of the, the previous topic, but I, we've already moved on, so. Oh, no, hey, move1.org. Listen, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's obvious at this point that the, the swap is, has won. I think um, one of my social media platforms, I said it, it felt like Empire Strikes Back, the movie, you know, the sequel. <laughs> you know, McConnell is part of the swamp. He's always been part of the swamp. And that's why they didn't want people like uh, Snowden and Assange pardoned. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I, I think you know, we're, lo we're looking at a tough road ahead. I think we know that. I think one, one thing that I am interested to see is just how the right responds at this point. Because I think 10 years ago, when we had o Obama, 12 years ago, the Tea Party movement rose up. And I'm not sure if I get the sense that we're going to see something along those lines now. I, I, I just, I, I wonder how the opposition is going to manifest itself right now. I'm not sure what the, the answer is. Yeah, we're going to get to that when we look forward in a few seconds. Ed, unlike you, I'm not surprised McConnell threatened him. I'm surprised. I believe that goes on every single day. Um, a little surprised it hit the news and the Tucker spoke about it as if it's something out of the ordinary. And maybe I'm wrong on that. I am not somebody who's been dumping on Trump, but I was a little disappointed that he didn't. Um, I'm fond of saying there's a reason that the almighty omniscient God created an odd number of fingers on your hand. And I think this would have been a good chance for Trump to illustrate that reason. And um, by just pardoning them just because. And the other thing that I was slightly disappointed in is the headlines seem to be saying, that Trump declassified some or most of the documents. And that did disappoint me. Is that what everybody's heard? I heard. I've heard that he did that, but I still haven't, I haven't seen many of the documents released. And, you know, we're, you know, I'm still waiting for the Durham report. I'm still waiting for the 33,000 Hillary emails. I mean, he promised a whole bunch of stuff was going to be released and he's gone. I mean, it's um, to me very disappointing that any of it is redacted, that it's coming out when it's going to be absolutely silenced. I don't think it makes any, you know, John Solomon, et cetera, will be able to write some really nice articles. There was a story today that they pretty much have Hillary dead to rights. Steele said he did what he did specifically to save Hillary from the email stuff. But I think it's, it's horrifically disappointed. It's like, 
you know, we all walked out of the theater after the credits and now they're showing us another two minutes of something. To me, it's, it's meaningless. And just like with the pardons, I think it was a really big missed opportunity. Now, is it, I know we're saying Trump had nothing to lose. I know I've said many times, I think he's gonna be indicted. I know they're gonna go after his children awfully strongly. Um, we've all seen the stories about who's lost their honorary degrees, about who's lost their appointments at various universities. I think it's Forbes magazine who said, do not hire anybody who can even spell Trump, I believe is the way they put it. So is he trying to protect that? I don't think so. And I hope not because there's nothing he can do now that's going to make them love him. So I, I am disappointed. Who was the woman who got, was she, was she a congresswoman? Was it Elise Stefanik maybe who Harvard said, give us our degree back? Look, I would have said, okay, give me all my money back because the degree has already served its purpose in my life. So pay me every cent and I'll give it back. I think she lost an appointment. I'm not sure if she's yeah. the one. Anybody know? I think that she was, she lost the appointment, uh, like a faculty appointment. Right, they're taking away mostly honorary degrees. But um, I'm just saying, it's not gonna change, just like Pence, by not going to Trump's send off and showing up at the inauguration is not gonna become the favorite of the media. So I don't really get why Republicans think with a gesture here or there, all of a sudden anybody's gonna um, fall in love with them. So looking forward, Ed, besides the first four hours and apparently a flurry of uh, executive orders that are coming or have come, what are we looking at? Well, <laughs> well, why don't I start by uh, offering something positive? I think, I think the stock market, most, most people expect the stock market to go bad. I think the opposite. I think the party of big business has won I think corporate profits are about to skyrocket. I think Biden's plan to, to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour to import lots of low-skilled workers and to dramatically increase both the duration and uh, quantity of unemployment compensation is going to, to really boost corporate profits because it's basically outsourcing labor costs to either the federal government or to American society in general in the form of the formerly illegals that are gonna come in. Um, I think it's gonna put a lot of pressure on the beleaguered small business sector. Um, and it's gonna drive more of them under. Uh, it's gonna drive those that try and survive to do uh, illegal under the table deals with, uh, with some of these new illegals that come in because the the, the increase in the $400 a week increase to unemployment benefits and the increased duration of unemployment benefits is going to make it really hard for people to, to give up unemployment. And uh, I think that you're going to get, you're going to wind up having these people coming in from Central America to do jobs uh, that are not worth $15 an hour. And it's going to subject small businesses to fear of audits. Uh, regulatory audits and regulatory oversight, uh, but it's going to push employment into big business and big government. Um, and, you know, there are lots of problems I see with that. I know I started off by saying I you know, wanted to start with something positive, but uh, I think for corporate profits, it's going to be really, really, really positive. Uh, Biden is going to protect all the big corporations that helped get him into the presidency. Uh, the Democratic Party showed that last year during the lockdowns. Uh, you know, Walmart and, you know, all the other big retailers were allowed to be open while small mom and pop shops have been closed. Um, and I think that's going to continue to, the, the policies are going to translate that way going forward in 2021. A lot of people are afraid of, of the stock market going down. I think the economy is going to tank, but I think that the stock market is actually going to do really well. So, um, but you know, the stock market was doing well before Trump it's obviously being inflated by the Fed and the easy money policy. And it's one area where I really disagree with Trump and you have a lot of people on the right, you know, cheerleading it, but he had nothing to do with that. You know what I mean? And then we're going to have Biden come in and it's going to just continue to, to, to go up. And there's not going to be much of an answer to that for a lot of people on the right. There'll, there'll be pullbacks for sure. But I think the, the trajectory is going to continue to go up. 
looks like Mike Sanello has a, a comment that he might want to make. Yeah, go. Yeah. So, Ed, I, I see what you're saying as far as basically basically creating a government protection from uh, with these uh, with the, with the large with the with the large business. Right. Because it, the more capital assets you have, the more capable you are of, quote unquote, weathering the storm. Mm-hmm. So I want to push back on the stock market growth thing, because I think you're right that we were two things. One, we are going to see uh, short-term gains in the stock market, but these gains are going to be very short-lived. And when I say short-lived, when you're invested in, say, like a mutual fund, the gains that you're looking for from these mutual funds aren't, you know, six months gains or 12 months gains. We're looking at like decades-long gains. And I think what you're going to wind up seeing is because of the, the valuation of the dollar that those long-term gains are going to be in the end crippled by a continuation of the policy that's being espoused from the left. Um, the other thing is that you're right, that the stock market gains are going to happen. And I think you're going to see a short-term economic boon, but that's only because Biden has fallen into incredibly easy conditions. We've got a vaccine it was, that, that's coming from all kinds of directions. The only reason that there's, there's economic downturn right now is because of the lockdowns. The moment the lockdowns are lifted, I mean, he's going to be walking into a, a V-shaped recovery. And I don't know if he's going to do that, but I'm not sure about that. Sorry to interrupt, but I don't think the lockdowns are about to end. I think that the $1.9 trillion stimulus bill that he's proposed, and which we know is only going to get bigger, is going to fund a lot of these states and localities that have locked people down. And it's going to be in the short term, yes. Well, and it, so. If, if they can stay locked down for another six to 12 months, mm-hmm. I think they're going to, I think they're going to continue. I think the noose is going to be tightened on small businesses. That I don't disagree with you on. And I mean, so, you've got, go ahead. Ed. No. So I just, I think that um, I think the lockdowns are going to continue. And I think that the stimulus money that they're, that they're spending is going to be aimed in part to in, in continuing the, the lockdowns. It's not yeah. going to be under that name, but that's the whole underlying motivation. So Who's going to benefit from the continued lockdowns? These large corporations that are allowed to operate and are basically the government is going to be forcing us to buy our groceries from Amazon, from Walmart, you know, from all these big chain, big retail chains. And those are the companies that are going to be in the Dow and even in the NASDAQ. It's going to push us into, you know, even the big tech companies. They're going to be protected. And I think that their their stocks are going to ultimately recover. Uh, despite the self-inflicted wounds that they're they're impo- imposing on themselves, and I think I, you know I think that the the stock market is distinct from the economy. I think the economy is going to be awful, and I think yeah. there's going to be a lot of unemployment and a lot of misery. Um, and for the Republican Party or for a Patriot Party or some other third party that might come to replace the Republican Party, I think there's a tremendous opportunity to. To, to connect with the, the people that thought, that used to think Democrats were the party of the little guy. The Democrats are no longer the party of the little guy. And Republicans or the Patriot Party will have a big opportunity during the next two to four years to show that they are the party of the little guy. If they want I got to make- ask a question here. I don't know if anybody claims to be an economic expert, but if high unemployment and worthless dollars allow the stock market to keep going up, what is it that brings them down and why are they disconnected? The stock market? In other words, what does make the stock market go down if not the fact that nobody has a job other than a few big companies? So what you're talking about is actually quite downstream from, so Ed is actually correct. That there is a, there is a, to an extent, a disconnect between the stock market, which is the valuation of the in, an investment in these companies and these specific companies, and the overall economic status of your average everyday human being in, in the United States. However, there is a downstream effect, I think, and that's going to be realized when the ability to, to trade these shares, the ability um, to continue to see investment of any, of any value is completely crippled by the fact, uh, if we're just talking about printing money alone, uh, this this takes a while to actually manifest, and it's really difficult to see. But the real value of the investment will wind up being crippled when we when when the debt has to be reconciled, and that's going to eventually happen. But it's just going to take a while. Let me two things. One, Steve, when 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 is when is it going to when is it going to the stock market going to go down? For example, here's an example of when it might go down when. 
let's say China buys up enough of our of, of U.S. debt to to force a default, then the dollar will crash if that happens. Uh, if China decides, well, we're just not going to refinance you, pay us now. Okay, that's one possibility. Uh, another possibility is um, just in general, debts beginning to default and getting and getting what we're, what are called cascading defaults, where uh, you've got these large pension funds and, and, and investment houses and uh, insurance companies that have what they think are safe investments that suddenly turn bad because of defaults on the counterparty side. And once those defaults start happening, it can lead to other defaults and you get a chain reaction of defaults, similar to what happened with the banking crisis in 1930, 30, between 1930 and 33. Um, and so those are, those are two examples of how, um, how the, the disconnect might wind up being reconnected. Um, Mike, I think that as long as the dollar is the world reserve currency, I don't, the dollar is going up and down and it's been going, it's been going down in the last year or so, but it was really rising for most of the Trump years to the point where they almost had to do another Plaza Accord for any of the economics people that are uh, knowledgeable of the subject. The Plaza Accord was a 1987 or 1986 agreement where the dollar had gotten so high uh, during the Reagan administration that uh, the world the world financial leaders got together and decided that they all had to coordinate it, to coordinate and intervene in the market to push the dollar down. Uh, but for now, uh, the dollar is the world reserve currency and outside the US, there is a large demand for dollars, if anything, a shortage. Um, I know that China has, has, China and Russia have been trying to, to supplant the dollar as, as the reserve currency. The, the EU tried to do that for the last 20 years, but they have failed and the euro is not going to supplant the dollar. Um, but anyway, I, I'll, I see my, uh, Mike Sanello has a, has a I got I got a follow-up question since I'm trying to learn something about something that's way too complicated for me. I've always thought that, quote, consumer confidence has an effect on the stock market. Is that, yeah. is that not true? And second of all, um, the housing right now is in this weird place, especially in places like New York where nobody is paying rent and no one's paid rent for a long time. And sooner or later, the people renting to them, like the empty buildings in Manhattan, et cetera, are going to be defaulting on whatever they owe to whomever they own it. And does that make, does that affect the stock market at any point? Or is it because it's so local, it won't? Um, so I'll just address the consumer confidence, Steve. That's that's mostly a reflection of of speculative investment, purely speculative investment. So um, I don't know that that's a great mover in the long and short in the long run when it comes to um, the stock market. So if you have say a, a Republican president win uh, win an, uh, an election, you might see a, a short term boost on the day of the election of uh, the election results, the day the election results are announced, just because there's a little bit more consumer confidence in you know market stability in terms of regulation. But that's again, that's kind of a short term thing, and the effects really aren't aren't that large. Right. I mean, the whole animal spirits thing is is an outgrowth from Keynes himself, and Keynes was not a genius when it came to the economy just no. that you know he's been accepted in in you know in economics classrooms around the world but uh, he was wrong about just about everything just so. about everything yeah okay um so the second half of that question was what steve well i'm looking at new york because that's where i am and oh the rents the rent thing believable a ghost town so when all those people either not paying taxes and then has because they just don't have any money and they're leaving and at what point does the fact that tenants can't pay landlords, therefore landlords can't pay what they have to pay, does that affect the stock market at any point? Yes, but there's a lot of distance between the renter you're talking about and, and the stock valuation and the shareholder, if you will. So there is an effect and they will, that the day will come. However, because there are so many hands that have to be exchanged. And also, I mean, capital has the ability to allow you to do things like weathering a storm. So if you have cash on hand, it allows the delay of, 
of these effects to be from being seen. Um, and on top of all that, there is a regulatory aspect to all of this. So if if renters can't pay rent and the AOC wing of the DNC decides that they're just going to pay the rent for them, then what you wind up having is, again, another layer of disconnect. And this is what's, what Ed was talking about. I think I'd jump in here in just a second to talk, but I think this is what you're talking about when it comes to um, the effect of currency, which I'll just say one quick thing about money. Uh, and this is a huge part of what Keynes got wrong. Money, which is currency, is just a medium of exchange. It's not the end. It's the means by which we conduct trade and not the end. So I hope we don't ever conflate the, the fact that the money itself isn't the end. It's the exchange. It's the good that is exchanged, the service that is exchanged. Um, but yeah, Ed, if you want to go further on about um, the monetary I, effect. I think, Steve, you were, you're getting, you're, you're sort of grasping towards what I was saying about cascading defaults. At some point, a renter is going to default on, on owing the rent. On some, at some point, the landlord might have 10 tenants in his building. If two or three or eight of them fail, you know, don't pay rent and the bank is able to for, you know, put, kick them out, or the bank, the bank might try and foreclose on him for not paying his mortgage. And when he doesn't have the money to pay the mortgage, then the bank is going to foreclose and uh, it's going to depress ho uh, housing prices. And it's a, it's a chain reaction. It's not something that happens in one day. Um, but, the, you know, as you get one default, it can lead to another default, which can lead to another default. And at first it can be localized, but at some point it does spread and it spreads outside just the housing sector. Um, and in fact, it's not just the housing sector because you've got, you know, the student loan industry, you've got the credit card industry. Um, and I think that um, the banks have been shored up during, with all this money printing. I mean, that's, you know, we're getting a little far, a little bit of far of our, of our usual mission, which is politics and current events. And we're dealing with economics and finance. So, I, you know, you can interrupt me anytime. I, I think that the, at the beginning of this COVID pro problem, we had a severe banking crisis and there was, there was a shortage of cash. And um, I think part of the reason for all the money printing that occurred during 2020, um, and to give a statistic, I believe I saw that 40% of all dollars in existence today were created in 2020, which is a, an astounding number. Um, but I think the purpose of that was to shore up the banks uh, temporarily, I mean, you don't shore them up on a permanent basis by printing money, but uh, the, the money printing was done in large part to prevent the banks from failing. Um, but if you have a banking, if you have bank failures, that's going to be a tremendous downwards, uh, it'll have a tremendously negative impact on the economy and on defaults throughout the, uh, throughout the economy. I mean, just imagine, you know, I don't know where, what bank you have your savings in, but if that bank fails, you know, you might think you have, you know, a certain amount of money in the bank, but when the bank fails, it goes into receivership and the FDIC winds up paying certain people, but a lot of people can lose a lot of money that they thought that they had. Um, and that's what happens when you have lar large scale defaults on, a, on a, an economy wide basis. Let me ask a somewhat related question, which goes back to states versus federal, but still talking about money. I assume people like de Blasio and Cuomo and governors in other places are ecstatic right now because it looks like they will get their bailouts and they will get um, remunerated for their absolutely horrific handlings of economies for many, many years. But at what point do more and more states say, we're just not doing that? And you know, last week, we, you know, we had the conversation with CalExit and a few weeks ago, we had the conversation with uh, Texas independence. And I'm sure everybody picked up on the fact that every single one of the 50 states says that they're a net donor to the United States government and they don't get back more than they give. I'm not quite sure how that math works, but they all claim that. At a certain point, are states going to say, you know, you've mentioned before, Ed, about like IRS um, protests and stuff. We're not doing this. We're not going to keep bailing out the Cuomos. Why, you know, is DeSantis going to say, I'm not doing it anymore? And what would that lead to? How can DeSantis stop that? I mean, once the money is in the federal treasury and the Democrats control both houses of Congress and the presidency, DeSantis has no, no say in it. I mean, no, you would, you know, you've brought up many times about states just refusing to uh, pay to the IRS, federal taxes, et cetera. And also, does that push 
towards more of a states' rights things. I mean, it's we were many, many years already where states are subsidizing other states. So I assume Illinois, which doesn't have a reputation for uh, what do you call it, financial management of the state, if I'm not mistaken, they're way up there with her beyond New York. To me, that's got to push people who have moved out of those kind of states to say to their governors and to the legislatures, find a way. We don't want to pay Cuomo to mess up his economy. You know, well, isn't there another part side of that equation, though, is what what's going to be the incentive for those states to say we're not going to pay if they also receive already? So the, the carrots that they receive from the federal government, they're going to have to give that up first, maybe. Well, I'll that's like that to happen. Other states claim that they don't get any carrots. You know, a state like Texas, which claims to give much more. I mean, I know just like on a personal level, if you keep mismanaging your household and keep coming for me to bail you out, I'm going to get tired of it. So I know it, this is a much bigger problem in the state's rights and what can they do? But at a certain point, DeSantis has an open economy and supposedly they're doing very well. And apparently a lot of people are moving there to get to be part of it. But now we're going to give $15 billion to bail Cuomo out for destroying his economy. Well, or you think it'll never make that kind of pressure because it's so diffuse? And No, I think that that pressure can be brought, but you need an opposition party. And right now, the Republican Party does not seem to want to be an opposition party. They want to oppose Trump, but they want, don't want to oppose Democrats. And whether it's the whether better voices in the Republican Party prevail or a new party like a Patriot Party that Trump has been floated as potentially starting uh, comes into existence, there needs to be an opposition that is willing to stand up and point out with precise, with precision what's going on that we should not be bailing out states that locked down. And honestly, that should have been, that should have been part of the opposition to all the stimulus money. I mean, Trump, Trump from day one was willing to pay to stimulus money to help out people that were forced to stay home. That should have been something that the states should have had to pay. And why the federal government should be doing it is a mystery to me. It was a massive lost opportunity, but spilled milk is spilled milk and let's not cry over it. Going forward, some Republican or some Patriot member or some, some opposition has to stand up and say, you broke it, you pay for it. You shut your economy down, you dried up your tax revenues, that's on you. And if you wanna blame Trump, it's your, you can go and blame Trump all you want, but um, we're not paying for it. We're, you know, we, we, our economy is open and you know, we have our tax base intact. You know, we're not gonna pay for all of your financial management both during the pandemic and before. So. Well, I think there, there's an interesting um, aspect of this going forward, which is you do have tens of thousands of people who are unemployed. And I don't think we've felt the economic pain of this yet. I think we can agree on that. And as long as there's stimulus and unemployment benefits being handed out. But as soon as that ends, and you have to think at some point it's going to end, I think the bottom falls out because a lot of those jobs, as we know, are gone. We have small businesses that have been closing their doors. You have uh, hospitality industry, uh, restaurant industry, for example. The jobs are gone. There's nothing for these I'm back. What makes you think it's going to end? Why don't you think? I mean, to me, I see this, and it looks like forever. I mean, it looks like this is the this <laughs> is the beginnings of of the universal basic income. <laughs> I mean, that's what the Democrats have been fighting for, and they're getting it through the back door by by way of this by way of this pandemic. Actually, that's uh, that's something that we used to talk about on the Liberty Block Live with Dan. Is that like I, this is what they want? That this is this. There isn't a there isn't a rationale from their side. Like if we were to steel man their their side, there I I can't put together a rationale for getting rid of the lockdowns. So I don't I disagree with the, the people on on the right side of the aisle that said, oh, it's isn't it going to be convenient when you know uh, by, when these states start lifting their lockdown measures? And I, I just disagree with them because they're it's not convenient. They don't want to lift these measures. Ed is 100% right on this. I mean, this is this is an entire side of the aisle that has uh, that is incapable of separating the individual from the idea. And when you aren't able to do that, uh, you wind up with these at all costs 
philosophies. The end is all that matters. So in this case, if the end is universal basic income, if the end is socialism, then the means by which we get there doesn't matter. And, and, and this is something, just as a brief aside, this is something that harkens back to a complete polar opposite fundamental view of the world that the left has from, from, from the people that are in this, in, in this show right now. Um, and this is something I had a debate with with people on, on Discord. They said things like, I don't care about hypocrisy. Hypocrisy doesn't matter. Uh, I mean, we're dealing with... I've heard with, that, I've heard that yeah. from... So, so like, uh, this is something I wanted to push back with Jody on when, she's, when somebody calls you a Nazi without evidencing it. And remember that they're incapable of separating the individual from the idea. So if they are engaging in good faith, which they aren't, then the no. proper response is, okay, let's have a debate about this. But since they aren't, the proper response is, I'm not apologizing for anything. You dirty, dirty smear merchants, get bent. So are we the first country that's been able to print money forever and ever and get away with it? Well, we are getting away with it in the short term. And I, Ed's gotten up for just a second here. But everything that we've talked about is the short game. And I don't know how much time we want to devote to the short game if we want to win the long game. And the long game, if we play it, is really going to hurt. It's really going to hurt. It's what the left did starting in the 1940s, and it's taken this long to take hold in our society. And remember, they have all of the institutions uh, of intellectualism in this country right now. They have the, the mainstream me uh, media is in their pockets. They have uh, all, all of your higher education and lower education uh, Jugend, if you will, in their pockets. They are just a, they are an extension of the propaganda wing of the DNC, and they have an absolute autocratic technocracy ru running in Silicon Valley right now. And that's kind of a scary situation, especially when the presidency and the House and Senate are controlled by a party who are controlled by one party, and that one party has openly called for uh, the the ex the excommunication, if you will of dissenting voices. It's the party that has said that they want to get rid of uh, the sovereignty of these states, that everything should be directly subordinate to the Fed. That's why Biden said that he's going to put together this mask mandate. And again, this harkens all, all harkens back to at an at-all-costs approach. The end is all that matters. The process doesn't matter. This is why they're, they're, CNN right now is calling for Joe Biden to just use the power of the presidential pen to push through policy. The only thing I'd add to that, Mike, is I think. So I'm sorry for the rant here. I, I, and I know I, I saw you got up, so I tried to, you know. That's okay. Thank you. Uh, the only thing I'll add to that, Mike, is that I think that the ends that they, the, the means that they choose are part of their ends. I think they want police state power. I think they want to force us to, to say irrational and stupid things. I mean, that's why we're being forced, you know, what was Nancy Pelosi's first rule change that you can't use man, woman, grandparent, you know, anything that-, that Which has, she wound up breaking within 24 hours. Right, but they're, right, but it, as you said, hypocrisy isn't part of the problem. I mean, they, they're trying to, to break us and making us say irrational, stupid things that we know are not true is part of the game plan. It's- it's also a means to their larger end, which is just mind control um, and people control. But I think that I think that that means is actually part of the ends that they're seeking. Well, this, this is what kills us with what happened on the Capitol uh, at the Capitol two weeks ago. It played right into their hands. Um, you know, you and I, Ed, we were part of the Tea Party movement again ten plus years ago, and one thing we knew was never to do anything even remotely like that. The slightest little thing would have been blown out of proportion. And unfortunately, again, we, we assume still that most of those people were Trump people that went there. Or, you know, I don't assume that. Well, they're, they're fringe elements, whatever, whatever, whoever they yeah, are. I'm going to go back to that Latin phrase of who benefits, even though it's water under the bridge. Um, yeah. I tend to Listen. agree with Ed that there's really no reason why they can't print money for another four years, as far as I can tell. And my understanding of politicians is keep printing because when the you know what hits the you know what, we won't be here anyway. So I don't know why they can't do that. Since we're coming towards the end of the show, Ed, did you want to say anything about the uh, growing censorship? Well, it's a, it's a gigantic threat. 
Um, I think that we all need to be prepared for having our communication severed. Uh, I know several people on this on this show, including me, have I've been I've been put on a 30 day ban from Facebook. I was given no warning, no explanation, no means for appeal. Um, I say some things that have sharp opinions, but I don't think I say anything that violates their terms of service. I'm sure I've never said anything or written anything there on that platform that uh, that advocated violence. Um, nonetheless, I got a ban and it's my first ban, I think ever. I mean, I might've gotten one right when I first started. I don't, I, I vaguely remember, but you know, that's 15, 12 years ago or something. Um, and, you know, when you, when you have no access to your, to, to, you know, to respond to people who are sending you messages, even, um, you know, I see people sending me messages and I can't respond to them because I don't have an alternative means of reaching them other than through Facebook. And, um, I think that's part of the coordinated effort that's going on here. Um, and I do believe it's coordinated through the government, through informal means. Um, I think that uh, there's a lot of revolving door employment between high level members of the government and high level executives at the social media companies. Um, and and there's, also, there's also plenty of public comments from Democrat political leaders saying that if the, if the social media companies don't clamp down, the government should regulate them. Um, I think that's a little bit of fluff because I think that all these companies are run by leftists that want to do the kind of censorship that the Democrats want. Uh, but it's, you know, it's, I, think it's a, I think it's a little bit of a dog and pony show when they, when, when they do that. But uh, the bottom line is, I think that it's a coordinated effort between big business and big government to strangle all other aspects of society. And for the two of those, for those two groups, to take control of our country and take control of our lives. Um, I spoke earlier in this show about uh, how I think that Biden's economic policies are, are gonna strangle small businesses even more. Uh, I think the continued lockdowns are gonna strangle small businesses. And I think they're trying to herd people into employment with either big business or big government. Uh, and that way, big business and big government have a further control over our lives. And I think that's what's going on. I think that's what the censorship is about. The censorship is designed to prevent us from communicating with each other. And the real, well, I don't know if it's a red line, but you know, right now, the, the last refuge of communication is, is the encrypted means of, of communication, like Signal. A lot of people went to Signal, especially after Parler's uh, deplatforming in such a quick, you know, short amount of time. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if the Patriot Act too that they're going to pass is going to require uh, is going to make encrypted communications illegal uh, because I think they're going to say I don't know I think but I wouldn't be surprised if part of the legislation and part of the floor debates say that uh, too many of these white supremacists too many of these Trump supporters and too many of these insurrectionists are communicating through encryption through encrypted messages that we can't, we, the government can't even follow. And it has to be made illegal or these companies are gonna to have to give some sort of keys to, uh, to the government to allow them to track us. Um, and I think that that's the end goal. They wanna prevent us from communicating. Um, and if they don't prevent us, they wanna intimidate us into not communicating through self-censorship because we're afraid that it's gonna be read by the wrong person and we're gonna lose I'm our lives. Going back to the positive note, you tried to stay on for 30 seconds in the beginning of the show. Only at the beginning, yes. What, it's going to be a hard four years. WhatsApp has actually backed off. I'm sure you've all heard that they're saying they're not going to implement their new sharing info with Facebook thing for several more months. So they obviously did get a gut punch. Um, is that going to last very long? Probably not. But there is a point at which enough people moving to the other economy I think would make a difference. Um, I don't know if anybody saw that clip on Brian Stelter, and no, I do not watch Brian Stelter, where somebody on the show said, we've been too lenient with the conservatives and we've let them communicate too much. That is pretty scary stuff. I know that our friends in New Hampshire who live in that crypto world, they have all kinds of ways of communicating, including websites and forums that I can't even make heads or tails out of, and it works well for them. But unless we're really techie, I think they're difficult. And I saw one story last week where somebody wants to ban certain types of handheld radio communication. 
because they know that the real preppers and oath keepers and the real nutty people are going to go to radios. And they're actually trying to get their hands into that. So I think when you say they're going to stop us from using the signal type things, I think that is a big danger. And can't be that hard for them to do. They just, if Google won't put it on their phone and, and Apple won't put it on their phone, that's 70, 80% of it. Well, and they already are using China as their laboratory, right? I mean, China has government instituted censorship and these companies are all working hand in, you know, hands together with the Chinese government to perfect imp and implement censorship in China. So uh, I think that's where, that's where this is going. And we need to be very careful about it because once, once censorship gets imposed, forget about censorship. Once, once they make it impossible for us to communicate or very difficult for us to communicate, it's going to be awfully hard to organize resistance. It's going to be awfully hard to organize protests. Um, you know, they're going to, they're going to really be able to, to uh, lock us down. And again, it's very sad that countries in Europe, I mean, Poland, which used to be a dictatorship way back when, at least when it was under the USSR, these countries are fighting back against these bans far more than America is. I know India is fighting back and other European countries, and we're just sort of like rolling over and accepting it. And again, I don't know what we can you know, do. You know, we talked earlier about Mitch McConnell refusing to allow Trump to pardon Assange and Snowden. Why? I mean, a Republican Party that's in true opposition to this tyranny that's developing around us would we have demanded that Trump pardon those people and have those people tell their stories and reveal what's going on and let the American people know, you know, alert them, you know, here's, there's, there's danger here and you need to act and you need to do something. Um, so with McConnell as the head of the Republican party right now, uh, that's, that's really the big problem. Right. And he's always able to crush the resistance. He knows how to fight when he's fighting people in his party. He's pretty yep. tough. Uh, I mean, why in the world Kentucky keeps sending him is, is way beyond me. But I'm, well, I'm many years... campaign for him, and Trump helped him get reelected this cycle. He is the most backstabbing, mm -hmm. disloyal jerk. And, that, and that's saying something in Washington, because they're all disloyal, backstabbing jerks there. But and he apparently yeah. has a lot of business connections to China. But um, I listen, I, know, I haven't believed for almost a decade, and maybe I've been slow, that we don't have two parties in this country. And I think one of the major missions of the next few months is making sure no one believes we have two parties anymore. And whether that means a Trump party or another party or who knows what, or taking over the Republican party, we don't have two parties now. Well, so, maybe- Go ahead, Jody. No, I was just gonna say, maybe All that's right. part of the reason why we're seeing such extreme hysteria. Not that the Capitol was not a horrible thing, but as a sort of Reichstag fire, opportunity to ramp up censorship, to ramp up silencing people. And, you know, maybe, like you said, it's been a long time the Republicans really weren't any different than the Democrats. And now they have the opportunity to pretend that it's in our best interest for them to be behaving this way. And frankly, it's not terribly surprising, you know, wasn't that long ago, we had our own universities who actually were banning conservative speakers under the guise of hate speech. That's a level of insanity that I never thought I would see, but really it was just the precursor to what we have today. Really, it's, it really is just to use words as weapons and use words to further their, the, their end game, which really, I, I don't even, I think it's just a bonus for them that we can't communicate when they silence and censor us. I think the goal is for us to not be heard because then they have to deal with truth. Then they have to deal with people knowing things. They can't have that, that doesn't work. I think that's part of it, but it's more than that. I think that they, they not only don't wanna hear the truth, they, they wanna hurt us. I think that they've, they've adopted the Orwellian uh, slogan that, that you know, speech from us is violence and you know, violence from them is speech. Mm -hmm. and that's mm -hmm. what they try, they, they implement that every day. Um, and I think that they mean to hurt us. They want to hurt us. Um, you know, there've been multiple people that have talked about the need to deprogram Trump supporters, re-educate us, put us in re-education camps. Uh, and I don't, and when somebody tells me something like that, I believe them. I believe that's what they, that they are for. Um, and I think that they, they intend to hurt us. I think part of the point is going back to 1984, 
there was nothing that uh, Mr. Winston could have done to hurt them, but they still had to totally torture him until he gave in. So, and I think that's kind of what we're arguing about now. The people on the left are not satisfied with us being totally impotent. Correct. I think that's the scary one of the scary. That's why they'll never they'll never go, go you know go along with any form of secession or state nullification. I just don't see them going for it um, because it's not about they would not be able to tolerate our freedom to be. I think again, secession's a, a much longer um, argument. The question is not whether they'll tolerate it. The question is what will the military do in order to shoot people that they love and their own family members and. Listen, I, I do have somebody and I can't say much, but I'm close to somebody in the military. And just this fact that I believe they've thrown out 12 National Guardsmen already. It was originally two, I believe it's 12 because they had the wrong beliefs or they mentioned the wrong thing. At a certain point, they're going to push the military too hard. So I don't think the military would rebel, but there's going to be a certain amount of the military at some point saying no. So again, is that 10 years from now? I have no idea, but nothing that's happened in the last year would we have believed would only take a year to happen, right? You know, I think, what, I, don't, I don't remember who had the discussion, but this is, this is not necessarily gonna be a war on a battlefield with guns when they own the means to our livelihoods and heating our homes and feeding our children. I mean, it's a totally different kind of scenario having a war with essentially those who own commerce. Yeah, and I, I can't remember who it was. I put it down in show notes this week or last week that there's no way we can ever do this because they'll just shut off our water. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I remember who said it. it was on a podcast with Derek Hunter. They'll shut down our utilities. Yes. But, but again- well, They're already they're showing they will do exactly that. That's how they'll function. Yeah, I think they can overplay their hand. Anyway, let's, let's wrap up everybody if they want to make a uh, 90 second or less comment. Why don't we start? Mike Sanello looks like he has something he wants to say before we get to a closing. Yeah, this will be only like 30 seconds. And this I'll just use as part of my closing. So Ed is right. If we're going to take the, if they're going to say things, we should take them at their word. And if they want to push us to have our own alternative banks, our own alternative water, our own alternative uh, currency, our own alternative everything, then the last bastion of alternative that we can come up with is government. And that to me says that if you don't think that it's worth playing the long game and we can go, we have probably an entire show to go over what the long game is. And part of that is doing what Ed said with third parties, though I would be very careful about going about that because although we may have reached a Nash equilibrium and that's may not be the best of things, Remember who the opposition is and be very and tread very lightly with things like forgetting that that in many ways, um, Mitch McConnell was the last bulwark against the AOC, if if you want to call it that wing of the DNC, as scary as that prospect might be. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it, but we just we just need to tread very lightly in that case. And, you know, I, I, this, is, this is where the notion of secession comes in. If we're going to do alternative everything, we should take them at their word. And at some point, it's going to be worth forming the alternative government, and it's no longer going to be worth playing the long game. Interesting. Jody? Um, I, I would look forward to that long game show. I think that would be fascinating. But no, I don't really have, do I have anything, not particularly on closing. I'm, I'm good. That was positive. <laughs> Ed? Well, I think it's going to be a long four years. Uh, I'm not optimistic about the, the Biden presidency. Um, one of the things that we, we talked about in the show notes, but didn't get to in the show is whether it's time to go golfed. Uh, and I'll just tease this for maybe a future episode, maybe next week. Um, I think that before we go Galt, we should go Reardon, if anyone who's read Atlas Shrugged knows those, that reference. Um, and to Mike Sanello's point, I think that we need to let people see exactly what's going on and feel some of the pain. I think that people are a little bit too comfortable. Um, not that I want people to feel pain and be dis uncomfortable, but 
I think that there are too many people that think um, that think that everything is really okay and things aren't okay and they need to see it firsthand for themselves. And um, I think I think having uh, having having so many people losing their jobs uh, could could be that spark. But we keep bailing them out. We keep extending unemployment. Um, and, you know, I'm one of those people. I lost my job during COVID. I still have not found another job. Um, not that I need to feel pain and not that I want to feel pain, but um, I, I can tell you from firsthand, you know, firsthand that the, the, bail, the, the bailouts have been the lifesaver for me. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I think that it's almost like a drug for, for our society and our culture. I think that um, people are, are comfortable and more comfortable than, than is warranted given the, the dire circumstances that we're facing. Um, you know, we, I don't, I, I'm always uncomfortable when anytime a, a Nazi analogy comes up, but I'm gonna make one anyway. In 1929, Germany was, was, a, was the Weimar Republic. It was a free society. Um, it was, you know, people didn't realize that trouble was right around the corner. Um, three, you know, four years later, Hitler becomes chancellor. Six years later, you have the Nuremberg Laws enacted. And, you know, nine years later, you have Kristallnacht and things really got bad. And um, I don't know how fast things can deteriorate here, but uh, we need to be prepared. And I think people are woefully unprepared for how bad things could get and how quickly they could get here. And, um, you know, the long game might turn into a short game or a shorter game than anyone realizes. And we need to be prepared uh, for a lot of possibilities. So uh, I'll just leave it with that at that for this for this week's show. Okay, so the book that we mentioned less than Animal Farm in 1984 is Brave New World. And Brave New World was, as I remember it, the answer to making people feel the pain. Brave New World was how our government made sure that nobody would feel the pain. So I think whether that's through iPhones and iPads and, and all kinds of gizmos or any other way of keeping us numb, I think unfortunately they got that covered to a big extent. Anyway, thanks everyone for participating. We should be back next Wednesday, four o'clock as always. And this show will be up as a podcast on iTunes and on SoundCloud within hopefully about a half an hour. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful evening. Bye, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Bye, everyone.